using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll be able to find that on page uh, 1286. 1286, Hebrews 13. Over the last couple of weeks, using the metaphor of a symphony, uh, we've been looking at the different movements, as it were, the different parts, the different pieces that make up the large picture of brotherly love, the call of the author here and of Christ, the exhortation to this community, which is a call to brotherly love as a means of growing in endurance in the face of the persecution that is that we've, we've talked about several times, is, is coming down the pipe toward them. As tempting as it must have been for this congregation to respond to this external threat by gearing up for war and getting ready to fight, the author calls them instead to love Christians, to love other Christians, and even to love those outside the community well. To fulfill the two great commandments that summarize the whole of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, last week we looked at particular aspects of that brotherly love that are more occasional, uh, not constant, not necessarily all the time, but come up from time to time in our lives that we need to be prepared for, be ready for. This week the author, author begins to dig into harder ground, more difficult aspects of this enacted brotherly love, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, those things which are not occasional, but which are consistent, even constant in our lives. And again, as we've said repeatedly, as I've said again and again, this is all built on the truths that we've gotten throughout the whole book. This is the application at the end of the book that it's going to feel a lot like, do this, do this, but that is all a response to the truth of the gospel that we've seen him declare through the first 11 and a half, 12 chapters of this book. Uh, so just keep that in mind as we go through this. And of course, as we open God's word, as always, we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us through this, his word, and teach us his truth. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Hebrews 13. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need your grace. We need your truth. We are trapped in a world where we have a hard time seeing truth, have a hard time discerning that it is truth even when it hits us in the face. And even when we see it, even we, when we discern it, we are more likely to pervert it to mean what we want it to mean than we are simply to accept it as your truth. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need your spirit among us, inside us this week. This morning, as we open your word, we need you to open our eyes to see clearly what you have declared to us, to soften our hearts that we may believe it and apply it faithfully. Give us the grace of your spirit to lead us into truth this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 13. This is God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life Free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. What is your single most prized possession? If your house were on fire, and assuming all of your family members got out already, if your house were on fire and you had time to grab one thing, what would you grab? What would it be? What would happen if you didn't get to it in time and it were lost? How would you respond if you had to give it up? So Earlier this year, there was a, an article published in one of the major national newspapers uh, with the title, You Can Take It With You If the Grave Is Big Enough. Here are some highlights. Are you ready? In 1977, Sandra Eileen West, a flamboyant Beverly Hills oil heiress, was buried with her baby blue 1964 Ferrari. Her grave is next to her husband's at Alamo, Alamo Masonic Cemetery in San Antonio, and apparently it's become like a tourist attraction, this car buried with her, whatever. Uh, in 1984, Willie Stokes Jr. of Chicago was interred in a coffin styled like a Cadillac Seville with functioning head and tail lights. Why? I don't know. And that event actually was immortalized in a song by Stevie Ray Vaughan, apparently. Uh, another Cadillac fan was Aurora Shook, a uh, native of Cuba who was buried in Aurora, Illinois uh, in 1989 with her red 1976 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. With the top down, the coffin was placed over the rear seats. It took 16 grave sites to fit that one car in because it's one of the largest Cadillacs ever produced. Those of you who bought grave sites know kind of what that's going to cost, right? George Swanson of Philadelphia had his ashes interred with his 1984 Corvette in 1994. In 2009, Lonnie Holloway and his 1973 Pontiac Catalina went into the ground together in South Carolina. This is, I didn't, who would have thought that there were this many examples of people being buried with their cars? Whatever. These are absolutely ridiculous, right? It's, it's utterly ridiculous to be buried with your car. And yet, no matter, I mean, no matter how much you like your car, it's not going to do you any good when you're dead. The, the functioning head and taillights, you're underground. Ain't going to do no good. But what might you be tempted? What is it that you might be tempted to say, I need to be buried with this? If money weren't an object, if money weren't a hindrance in any way, what might you be tempted to bring with you when you get planted under the flowers? Our passage this morning has a couple of direct, very direct exhortations, and I've Got some bad news because 2,000 years after this was written, or close enough, we are still dealing with exactly the same issues. Nothing's changed. There is nothing new under the sun. It's all exactly the same. What it was is what is, is what will be. And yet, you know, as, as much as we would like to look back towards some golden age when everything was better and all the things were wonderful and people didn't sin any, at all, Unless you're looking back to Eden, you're looking at a lie. 
Unless you're looking back to Eden, you're looking at a lie. There is no golden age. Sinful people are sinful. And let's be honest, ain't none of us all that creative about the sins that we commit. We, it's, we keep coming back to the same things over and over and over and over again. As much as I'd like to say we, that we face a culture today uniquely steeped in the excesses of greed and of the inordinate pursuit of sex, literally five minutes studying the culture of the Roman Empire in the first century puts that to, lie, to the lie. Yes, our culture is absolutely obsessed with sex and money, but not uniquely so. The, the bad news, as it were, is that we're still dealing with these same things. The good news, though, is that that means this letter is of immediate benefit to us because we are dealing with the exact same things. The exhortation, the encouragement speak directly to us across the millennia because we face these exact temptations that the Hebrews did. The cultural air we breathe is not that different from theirs. So this morning, we're going to look at the temptation that the author talks about here. And then we're going to begin to see the remedy that the Lord presents and finally, to see the connection to brotherly love, since this is still under that same heading, part of that same symphony. So we'll see the temptation, the remedy, and the connection to brotherly love. First, the temptation itself. On the one hand, I don't really need to give you much in the way of examples of these specific sins because we're all real deeply familiar with it, right? Much more so than we'd like to admit, perhaps. Probably you're already bracing yourself, so... Instead of doing that head-on take at it, let's come at it from the side. Because when, we, when, when I try to take, that he, take it head-on, we, we all kind of brace and we put up a wall so that I can defend myself against what I, I'm afraid is coming. So let's come at it from the side and, and see if we can get a clearer picture that way. I asked earlier, what would happen if you lost, some, lost the thing you value most? And for some of you, you probably had to think about it. But for most of us, that question requires no additional thought at all because we've given it a lot of thought. Usually in the moments or hours of quiet right before you fall asleep, the drives where you're alone with your thoughts, that sort of thing, the moments when nothing is going on, our brains fall into this, our hearts fall into this reflection on what if I lost whatever it is. We tremble when we think about losing that thing, whether it's an actual thing or a person or something less tangible like reputation or security or whatever. We tremble when we think of losing that thing that is most valuable to us. What do you find, find yourself thinking about late at night? What is it your mind and your heart dwell on late at night when you can't sleep? What are you afraid, even irrationally afraid, of losing. Now, again, when I ask that question, most of us default to thinking about an actual physical thing or an actual person in your life, but I would encourage you to think at least one layer more deeply than that. Toward that slightly deeper layer, what are you striving toward in your life? What is your goal? What is your hope? What is it that you hope, maybe more than you know how to say, what do you hope that you will receive or achieve in your life? What is your life aimed at getting? And again, we can think about tangible things, but as we start to think about what we're aimed at, we're more likely 
when thinking about the future, we're more likely to think more abstractly. We want stability or connection or safety or ease, things like that. And these are not bad things in themselves. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. They're not, it's not wrong to hope for those things. The problem comes when we center our lives on those things, when we put more weight on them than they are intended to bear. They will ultimately collapse under the weight of our hopes and our expectations. Now, this is one pragmatic reason that idolatry is bad. Idolatry, you will remember, is uh, taking a finite thing, usually a good thing, and elevating it to the level of an ultimate thing. So taking something that God has given us that is good and trying to make it God, make it take the place of God and give us the things that only God can in our lives. Making someone or something that is not God stand in the place of God in your life. The things that we make central, however good they may be in the abstract, cannot take the place of God and must necessarily collapse when we put that weight on them. So when we talk about the pursuit and even the idolatry of sex or money, we have to remember that for the vast majority of people, Sex and money are not gods in and of themselves. They have value only in what we think they can give to us. They have value only in what we think that they can give us. Sex and money have value only in what we think they will give us if we get a hold of them. As a culture and as individuals, we pursue sex because we think it will give us connection and intimacy. Union with another person on a deep level, a level that will get past these walls that we put up between each other, that isolate us. And of course, within the context of marriage, sex is designed to be the expression of that union that is forged between two people by a mutual, self-sacrificial commitment to each other. But apart from that permanent mutual commitment, sex opens us up to all the vulnerabilities, but provides none in itself, provides none of the security that we crave. It turns a moment of emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy into just one more place where we need to put up walls to defend ourselves from the very vulnerable union that we crave. We long to be emotionally connected to someone. And yet when we use sex as the tool to get us there, it just creates an extra barrier, blocking us from the very thing that we think we want. When we talk about the pursuit of idolatry of money, again, most people don't pursue money because they like having a large number in their bank account. Money in itself has remarkably little value. I know that sounds kind of funny, but in itself, money is not very helpful. Money is valuable for what it can do for you right? What it makes easier. It attains value in what it can do for us. Who, and who among us hasn't spent at least some time daydreaming about what it be, would be like to have just a little bit more than we currently do? To think about how much more secure we would feel if we didn't have that debt, whether it's school loan debt or car payment or mortgage or even medical debt. You know, there's any number of ways we can end up in debt. How much easier would life be if you didn't have to deal with if you just had enough money just to pay the bill and not have to think about it, what would it be not to carry that stress with us every day? How nice would it be not to have to wrestle with too much month left at the end of the money? 
not to have to choose between something you need and something your kid needs. Or between two things, each of which is a necessity. Not to have to choose between food or medicine, for example. The goal, this goal of attaining money becomes more clear when we, that when we, becomes more clear when we realize that most people aren't looking for Bill Gates money. There was a study done probably 10 or 15 years ago now. Uh, pretty consistently across every demographic, pretty consistently, what was discovered is that everybody desires approximately 10% more than they currently have. Whatever we have, we want 10% more. If Jeff Bezos offered us, offered his entire fortune, probably none of us would respond, no, 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 I'm fine, it's cool, you go give it to somebody else. We'd take the money, right, if somebody offered it. But when most people dream about money and having money, we think about not a gajillion dollars like Jeff Bezos or, or Bill Gates or whoever. We think about just a little bit more to make meet, making the ends meet just that little bit easier. Because most of us don't care about money as money. We care about mo what money can buy us, security and ease and freedom from anxiety about tomorrow. When I frame things that way, it's much easier for us to see that what we really want is not money, it's Christ. What we really want can only be received from God's hand, and all of this other stuff is nothing more than striving after the wind. If you got that 10% more, you would most likely find that your problems and temptations and struggles had increased commensurately with the new money that you got, because you would still be the same person. If you captured that goal of more sex, you would actually find yourself more isolated than you were before. Here's the uncomfortable truth. We are designed to serve something, to serve someone. We can reject serving God, but, only, but not by choosing to serve nothing. We can only reject serving God by choosing to serve something else, something less something necessarily less able than God to satisfy what we actually want. As Christians, we know that intellectually, right? I'm not telling you anything you've never heard before. We, can, we, can, we, we live in a culture and in a world that is steeped in isolation, insecurity, fear, disconnection, pain, grief. This is the air that we breathe. This is the world in which we live and work. We long for something different, something better, and everything around us tells us that better can only be found in certain ways through pursuing your truest self. Follow your heart, right? That's what the world will tell you. Frankly, I can't think of more disastrous advice to give somebody than follow your heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Follow your heart is terrible advice. We are designed to serve Christ. And that requires humbling yourself, allowing another to dictate to us what is good and what is not. When we look at our circumstances and say, if God were really sovereign or if God were really good, He would have done fill in the blank. 
each of us has, you know, that circumstance, that situation in our lives that we're stressed about, that we're worried about, that we don't know what's going on and we'd like for it to be different. When we look at the Lord and say, if you were really good, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen. We are saying, my definition of good, what I think is good, defines whether you, Lord, are good or not. Whether you are sovereign or not. Well, maybe, maybe he is good, but he just wasn't able to do this thing for me. You are undermining the very character and nature of God. We are designed to serve Christ, and that requires humbling ourselves, allowing someone else, him, to dictate to us what is good and what is not. He gives us what he knows is good, not what we think is good. And sometimes those are the same thing. But let's be honest, most of the time they're not. We want the wrong things, don't we? We don't serve... Excuse me. We're designed to serve Christ requiring humbling ourselves, which is sometimes, rarely, fine. Sometimes we're willing to do that, but most of the time, let's be honest, it feels like death. Here's this thing that I want, and you're telling me that it's not good, and this other thing that I don't want at all, you're telling me is good, that feels like death. Which is why the Scripture calls it dying to yourself. Die to your sin. Die to the things in which you used to walk. The goals that you used to have. We don't strive for sex and money anymore. We don't strive and serve security or ease or freedom from anxiety or whatever else. Those are not our gods. Christian, beloved, please lay those aside. Those are not your gods. They will not give you what you want. We serve Christ alone, and from His hand we receive grace and mercy. And yes, also true security and true ease and freedom from anxiety and deep connection and all of those other things that we actually want, we receive from His hand, but only when we serve Him without expectation of Him giving us whatever. We serve Christ alone. In Him is the fullness of all that we search for everywhere else, even though it won't look like what you think it will. It won't look like security and ease and freedom from anxiety at first. But as you pursue Christ, as you serve Him and lay aside those dead idols, you will discover that He gives you true security, that He gives you true peace. So how do we break this destructive cycle? We are constantly drawn toward these idols, idols which drive us, frankly, to selfishness, towards pragmatism, towards the ends justifying the means. The, the old joke is if it works, if it's crazy and it works, it's not crazy, right? You've heard that before. Too often we adopt a slightly different version. If it's sinful and it gets you what you want, it's not sinful. It couldn't be sinful because it got you what you wanted, right? It's an absolute lie. We think that it all depends on us and on our efforts to accomplish whatever goal we happen to be pursuing today, whether that's an individual goal of security and safety and ease and whatever, or a larger goal. We think that it depends entirely on me and my effort because then I'd be in control. When we think that way, if the goal truly does depend entirely on me to accomplish and anything that works toward that end is automatically righteous because it accomplishes the end, 
then the people in our lives will become tools to use to accomplish my purposes, or they will become obstacles to flatten on the way to my goals. And conversely, you will be a tool for other people to use or an obstacle for them to flatten in the service of their goals, in the pursuit of their goals. Serving these idols drives us to see everyone else in the world as less human than I am. As less worthy of dignity. So naturally, I will sacrifice them at a moment's notice if it will further my goals even a little bit. Remember in the movie Shrek, Lord Farquaad? Towards the beginning of the movie, he's, you know, there's this tournament and all these knights are there. And he said, the winner of the tournament will have the honor, the, the, the right, no, the honor to pursue and rescue Princess Fiona, somebody, anyway, whatever her name was, rescue the princess from the terrible dragon. And then he says something that's just so absolutely key. He says, some of you will die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. When I order my life by serving dead idols, all the work has to be accomplished by me. There's just no room for brotherly love because the margin is too thin. I may do some things that look like caring for you, but in the end, it's all about what I can get out of it. If I do you a favor, it's because I want, to, I want you to owe me a favor so I can get something from you later. But, When I order my life around serving Christ and His kingdom, everything depends not on me, but on Him. And that's exactly what we see here. Quoting from Joshua and a couple of the Psalms, the author reminds his readers and us that if we have Christ and nothing else, we have everything. If we have Christ and nothing else, we have everything. If we have everything else and not Christ, we have nothing. We get anxious because our treasures are kept where they can be destroyed, where they can be stolen and taken away from us, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. You've heard that language before. But our true treasure is Christ. Christ Himself. And He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He cannot be destroyed. They tried. It didn't work. He will continue to help and guide us no matter what else happens. How could we fear if we know the sovereign creator of all that is loves us and is actively helping us? How could we be afraid of what might happen when that's the case? You have God in your corner taking care of things for you. What are you afraid of? When our lives are oriented around that truth, everything else falls into place. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that your life is going to be great and everything's going to be peachy and all all the troubles are going to go away because everything's fine. That's not what I'm saying. When we orient our lives around the truth that Christ is King and we are serving Him, those troubles that we face get diminished. We still face them. We still struggle. We are still in a world full of sin and we are still sinful. But our struggle with them is lowered because we trust Christ and He is with you. He is caring for you, leading you. Our treasure is Christ Himself. 
We do not need to pursue sex to have intimate connection. In Christ, we are perfectly known and loved anyway. That's our great fear, right? Our greatest fear is that we will be known and rejected. That people will see us for who we truly are and say, no, no, I want no part of that. In Christ, we have true connection because He knows you down to your toenails. He knows you far better than you know you. And He loves you anyway. You are not rejected. We do not need to pursue uh, money to have security because as Christians, we have Christ's promise never to leave us, never to forsake us, even when we are awful to Him, which we are regularly. His promise to help us in our struggles and our trials Help us not to attain our goals, which, let's just be honest here, are mostly small and selfish and ultimately destructive to us, but He will help us to to pursue that which is actually good for us. All the fears that come up in the night, the anxiety common to all humanity, all of it blows away like mist in the heat of a summer day in the presence of Christ and His promise to you, Christian. You are His child, the one that He loves. How could He give you up? How could He give you up? You are the one that He loves, His son, His daughter, His beloved. Let go of your need to control the situation because you can't even if you wanted to. Let go of your need to control the situation and trust the one who actually is in control and who loves you dearly. If he were in control but hated you, you would have reason to fear, right? You would have reason for terror. But he loves you. He loves you dearly. Are you not, we told the children this morning, are you not of more value than the sparrows, of greater dignity and worth than the wildflowers? Christian, if your God feeds the sparrows and clothes the wildflowers in the glory that he does, how will he not much more care for you? Your God knows you personally, individually, and loves you, and he has said that he will never abandon you, will never forsake you no matter what. Rest from your striving after the wind. You already have everything you need in Christ. Rest in him. Trust him. Rest in him. What does all this have to do with brotherly love? Again, I, I said that this is all, the, the goal of all of this is uh, to pursue brotherly love with an eye to enduring persecution, to strengthening us that we might endure persecution better. So what does this have to do with that? A professor at my seminary put it this way. He said, what is called for today is a growing core of Christians, not who have martyr complexes, but whose daily lives are lived in such winsome, habitual, and cheerful self-sacrifice that they can weather even adverse circumstances with God-glorifying wisdom and grace. When you orient your life toward Christ and away from your fears, away from your attempts to earn your way to whatever it is that you want this week, When you orient your life toward Christ and away from your fears and struggles and insecurity and the isolation of the world, you are freed to serve others, especially to serve your brothers 
and sisters in Christ with the same self-sacrificial love that you receive from Christ himself. Now, we're not great at it. We fail constantly, right? You, if you've walked with Christ for like five minutes, you know that that's the case. We're not good at it. But we grow in Christ-likeness. We grow more and more like Christ in our self-sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters. We grow more and more like Him the more we pursue His face above all else. The more we emulate Him and self-sacrificially serve Him by serving each other, the more we are all together built up in our ability to endure persecution and hard times. Because at the end of the day, as Justin Martyr, who is a, a Christian uh, pastor, uh, martyr in the second century, I believe, uh, as he put it right before his death, his death for the faith, he said, they can kill us, but they cannot do us any real they can kill us, but they cannot do us any real harm. As long as you focus your eyes on this world and the struggles and the trials that we find there, you will be drawn to take whatever you think you need or want from anyone you can, anytime you can, and most especially from those you know, because they're the ones most vulnerable to being taken advantage of by you. But as you look more and more to Christ, as you see His glory and majesty and sovereignty and goodness more and more, you will be drawn to give yourself, not take from them, but to give yourself more and more to all those around you and especially to those you know and who together with you are united to Christ. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that you do watch over us and care for us, that you draw us to yourself. We are no good at serving each other self-sacrificially. We are no good at looking to you above all else. We are so distracted by all the mess in our lives, by all the things that we think we want, we beg you, Lord Jesus, give us grace to see you more clearly today than we did yesterday, to see you more clearly tomorrow than we do today, that we might emulate your self-sacrificial love, that we might serve each other, and build each other up, that we might follow you faithfully in whatever you bring in our lives, in whatever you allow, whether it is all the things that we want or persecution and hard times that we must endure. We pray that you would give us grace to see you more clearly. And as we do, to fall on our face in worship of your glory and your mercy. Change our hearts, Father, Son, and Spirit. Change our hearts to be more like you. Remake us in the image of your Son, Jesus, who died in our place on the cross. We pray all this in his name and for his glory. Amen.